Bibles up to Genesis 28. If you've got the Pew Bible, we're going to be in uh, on page 23 there. And uh, if there's anything that comes up that sparks a question, you can go to slido.com and uh, type RevCDA into the box there and it, type in a question. We'll take a look at those when we're done. Let me pray for us. God, I, uh, I'm just aware this morning of uh, how tired I feel. Um, conversation with other people this morning and uh, hearing how tired they feel. Um, don't know what that is. It's rainy. Maybe that's all. Uh, but for some of us, it's been, it's been a hard week. I know some of us are having trouble sleeping. Um, and it's, it's just easy to feel um, out of sorts in the morning. Um, God, uh, these things, weariness, hunger, fatigue, the, these all play a part in, in drawing us away from you. They're used by uh, our enemy to um, keep us dull of hearing, um, and I just pray uh, that you would work against that in our hearts this morning, that you would uh, wake up our minds, our souls, give us ears to hear what you have to say to your church, pray that you would give me words to speak, that I would be clear and coherent, and that um, the things that I say that aren't worth remembering would be forgotten. Lord God, we just pray that uh, you would be glorified um, as, we, as we worship you in submission to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, in the C.S. Lewis book, The Silver Chair, it's the fourth book in the Narnia series, um, according to the right way to number the books, uh, and it's about these, uh, the journey of these three characters, Eustace and Jill and Puddleglum, and they've been commissioned to search for missing Prince Rillian, the son of King Caspian. And as they're traveling, they've been told that they're to look for a sign. Um, the, the, and the sign is supposed to say, under me. Uh, and if they find this sign, what they find under the sign will lead them to their destination. But about halfway through their journey, they're caught in this ridiculous snowstorm, and visibility is like zero, and they're just they're they're pushing against the wind, and they get to this level plain, and the wind is just howling. But they find these um, crevices in the ground that are just these deep cuts below the surface. And they recognize that they can jump into them to gain um, shelter from the wind. So they do so, and they, they get into these, these, like, uh, the, the, yeah, these cavernous kind of spaces cut into the earth, and they um, walk through them. They're deep, and they're kind of windy, and they are protected from the storm. And it's not until a couple days later when they get out of this space and through a series of circumstances, they end up in a castle on the other side of this valley that they're looking out from a high window 
and they recognized that these giant cuts in the earth that they were walking through are actually giant letters spelling out the words under me. At this point, they are in a difficult situation because they're in a castle filled with giants and they have to escape in order to get back to this place that they were just at but didn't recognize. And they were in the right place, but they had the wrong perspective. They couldn't see clearly because of where they were. Jacob in this story is being sent out on an adventure, uh, and he is given this startling realization about the place that he is sleeping. Uh, But I think what we'll see is like the children in Narnia, he misses the significance of it because he sees it from the wrong perspective. So we read in, in the beginning of chapter 28, Isaac summoned Jacob, blessed him, and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite girl. Go at once to Padamaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. Marry one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply so that you may become an assembly of peoples. May God give you and your offspring the blessing of Abraham so that you may possess the land where you live as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. So Isaac set Jacob to Padan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. And Isaac noticed that, or Esau noticed that Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him to Padan Aram to get a wife there. When he blessed him, Isaac commanded Jacob, do not marry a Canaanite girl. And Jacob listened to his father and mother and went to Padan Aram. Esau realized that his father Isaac disapproved of the Canaanite women, so Esau went to Ishmael and married, in addition to his other wives, Mahalath, daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. She was the sister of Nebioth. So getting married back then, as it is often today, is a major transition in your life to a new season. Those of you that are married, um, especially married recently, recognize this. In the uh, uh, spring of 2002, I was living in half of a shared duplex with two other guys. We spent our evenings eating ramen noodles and playing video games. In the fall of 2002, I had been married and everything about my life changed. <laughs> right? This is, a very, this is a rite of passage, or at least it should be. You become an adult in a, in a way that you, you hadn't experienced before often. And, and Jacob is not married yet. And he's, he's been given this, this blessing and this birthright. And his, it's been, it's been um, really uh, bad the way it all came about, right? We talked about his scheming and his um, deception and his mom's deception and just everybody's brokenness over the last couple chapters. But in 28, everybody's just kind of resigned to the fact that it's like, well, this is how it is. Jacob is the chosen one. He is going to carry on the line, which means that he needs to get married. And so he's told to go find a wife from his mother's family, just like Isaac did, to carry on the line of the promise. But behind that, as we, we read last week, is this idea that, that his brother Esau, he wants to kill him because he's taken the birthright and taken the blessing. And, and he has been told by his mother, Rebecca, you need to run. And we're going to use this whole wife thing as an excuse to get that to happen. 
She believes it's only going to be for a short time. Go there till Esau cools down, and then you can come back. Everything's going to be fine. But the reality is it's going to be 20 years before Jacob returns. And, he ha- and we have no indication that he ever sees his mother again. So he's blessed by his father. These promises, these family promises are reiterated by Isaac, and he's sent off. But then Esau realizes, like, at least one of the reasons why Jacob is sent off is because Isaac and Rebekah don't really like Esau's wives. And we don't know why this is, but we've heard it a few different times in chapter 26 and chapter 27 and now in chapter 28. Something about these women that Esau has married are um, distasteful to Rebekah and Isaac. And so in, an order, in order to uh, kind of mend some of that brokenness, Esau decides, I'm going to fix this problem. I will marry another wife. But instead of a Canaanite woman, I will marry someone from the line of Ishmael, someone from within the family, which seems to be preferable to his parents. Uh, but what this serves to do, as far as the, the, the story is concerned, is it serves to connect Esau's even, Esau even more completely to the line that is not promised. Ishmael's line is not the promised line. It's the line, Ishmael was loved by the Lord, he was blessed by God, but he's not the chosen one. And his line will just kind of fade into the background of the story. And so Esau, again, con- connect, connects himself further to this line that's not really important to the story. And we'll continue to see that as the story progresses, that Esau is slowly going to just fade out of the picture. Genesis is going to be more and more concerned with Jacob and less with his brother. So in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He reached a certain place, spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and lay down in that place. So Haran's about 550 miles away. It probably took more than a month for Jacob to get there. And by the time he gets to this place that he's going to name Bethel, he's probably been traveling for a few days. He's been traveling light. He's been on the run. Um, He's the one that doesn't really like hunting in the woods, right? He's the son that likes to stay at home. So this is all pretty uncomfortable for him. What do you guys think he's feeling? You're Jacob. What are you feeling right now? Lonely. What else? Fear. Fear. Yeah. Maybe kind of confused. Maybe a little excited. Some of that? You ever, ever feel like a lot of things at once and you can't really figure out which one is, is bigger? Anxious, afraid, depressed, uncomfortable, sleeping with your head on a rock. And the text says something really interesting. It, it, it uses this word place. He reached a certain place and spent the night there. He took one of the stones from that place put his head there and laid down in that place. And it's foreshadowing something. There's something about this place. It's talking about the the physical space that he's in, but you could also think of it as the kind of situational space that he's in. 
right? Have, have you ever been in that place where maybe you're by yourself, you're not sure of the future, maybe you're a little afraid, a little confused, maybe you feel that right now? I remember when I was about 18 years old, I had... Um, I was, I was really confused about my future and, and college and education and career, and I was living in my friend's garage. My friend's garage um, didn't have any windows in it, so I, I was sleeping. He had this couch in his garage, and I would sleep on the couch in the garage and had no idea what time it was when I woke up. So I, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and it'd be like 1 o'clock in the morning. And then I'd go to sleep again, and I'd wake up, and it'd be like noon. And I had no idea because there was no light anywhere. And it was so uh, disconcerting. And I, I, I just remember thinking, like, I think, I think the direction I'm going down is the right direction, but I don't have any idea what I'm doing. I'm confused. I'm unsure. And I just have to imagine that Jacob is... In that place, he's been given all of these things in theory, this birthright and this blessing. He's the head of his family, but he's been sent away to find a wife, sort of, but also to run away from being killed. He's alone, and I would guess he's afraid. But then God does something pretty amazing in verse 12, and he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky. God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out towards the west and the east and the north and the south. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So Jacob in this, in this state, this, this, this place that is, that is confused and, and fearful and um, maybe a little excited for the future, but lonely, and God shows up. God is always the initiator, right? He, he is always the one that takes the first step. This is, I've said this before, but this is why we named our church Revelation Church. People ask me, like, is it because you study prophecy all the time? No, it's not. Um, it's because we believe that God reveals himself to people, that we would be people completely blinded to the reality of who God is unless he took the first step to introduce himself. And this is why Jacob freaks out. He didn't make a pilgrimage to a holy site to pay homage to a deity. He's just like in the middle of nowhere with a rock at his head. And God shows up in the middle of this difficult situation. Jacob has a dream. He has a dream that is difficult for us to wrap our minds around, but it would be pretty common how people would have understood the spiritual world back then. Many, many of, of you have, have read this story, or maybe your Bibles say that, that Jacob saw a ladder. We have things called Jacob's ladder, right? Ladder's probably not the best image, probably not the best translation. This word, uh, my Bible says staircase, is only used here in the whole Bible. 
It's the only time we see it. And there's a very similar word in the Akkadian language, which is a uh, sister language to Hebrew, which also means staircase. And so translators think that this is probably a staircase. And if that is so, it's a, it's a really common idea in the ancient world that the gods would go up and down from heaven to earth on the staircase of the ziggurat, the temple. If you remember when we talked about the Tower of Babel, I, I showed you a picture of, uh, it's, it's basically a pyramid, but it's a um, Mediterranean pyramid with steps and levels, and there's this big staircase that goes up to the top. And the idea would be that we build this staircase so that the gods could come down it and bless us. Or it could be something entirely different motivationally. We read in in Genesis 11, in the Tower of Babel story, they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. In that story, uh, the, the great sin of the people is that they're trying to build a staircase to get up to heaven, but it's the same piece of architecture. It's a stairway that would connect what happens on the ground here in earth with what happens in the heavenly realm. And so Jacob dreams about this cosmic temple staircase, and it's an image that he would have immediately understood But the the weird thing about the dream is that Yahweh, God, is not using the staircase. In the ancient Mediterranean world, the gods would have traveled up and down the staircase. But God's angels, God's messengers are using it. And the Hebrew is kind of vague, but either God himself is standing beside the staircase, he's standing beside Jacob. Some of the early church fathers imagine him like leaning on the side of the staircase, like, hey, what's going on? Um... But we see that these angels, they have business all around the world. They're going up and down the staircase doing their thing. But Yahweh, the God of Jacob's father, has time for Jacob. He's not too busy in this moment with the things going on all around the world. He has time to stop and to talk to Jacob. And he does something really important. He repeats the promises that he has given to his father and his grandfather, He will be with him. He will bless him. He will multiply his descendants. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him. And he will be with him wherever he goes. And this is is really important because Jacob has heard these things from his dad. He's heard these things from Isaac, but he's never heard them from God. And God reaffirms this truth to Jacob. I will take care of you. I will bless you. I will give you more than you possibly need, and everyone will be blessed through you. Another thing that we can recognize about this text that pushes back against Jacob's understanding of who God was is that the gods would have been considered territorial. We would... uh, um, All throughout the ancient world, you see that there are different deities for different places. And even Jacob thinks this. He wakes up and goes, oh, this is God's house. God lives here. I had no idea. There's a story in 2 Kings 17. um, After the people of Israel have been deported to Assyria because of their wickedness, Uh, We read, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuthah, Ava, Hamath, and Seravim, and settled them in the place of the Israelites in the cities of Samaria. So they, they removed the Israelites from the land, and they brought in foreigners. 
The settlers took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. When they first lived there, they did not fear the Lord. So the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. The settlers said to the, to the king of Assyria, the nations that you have deported and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the requirements of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent gods, or lions among them that are killing them because the people don't know the requirements of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria issued a command, send back one of your priests you deported. Have him go and live there so he can teach them the requirements of the God of the land. So one of the priests they had deported came and lived in Bethel, and they began to teach them how they should fear the Lord. So the Assyrian assumption here many years after is that Yahweh is the regional God of Israel. He's the God of, of this piece of land. And now that these other people live in the region, they don't know how to interact with this regional God, and they need to be brought up to speed by one of Yahweh's priests in order to make Yahweh happy. But we, what we read here in this story, God is teaching Jacob something different. He says, wherever you go, Jacob, I will be with you. I will, I will go with you. I will bring you back home to the land, and I promise that I will do it. See, the, the reality is, is that our God is the God of everything, the God of the universe, the God who created the world. And this is constantly in the scriptures how he refers to himself and how his people understand him is that there is no God that is, that compares with the God of the Bible. And we see this God who, again, has control over everything and has ministering angels going every direction all around the world, spending time with Jacob, giving his attention to Jacob. And you could ask the question, like, does Jacob deserve this? Does his, his lifestyle and his allegiance to Yahweh, does, does it warrant that? Is he... Is he checking all the right boxes and proving himself worthy of that kind of concern, the God of the universe? And the answer, of course, is, is no, right? Like he's, he's pretty rotten. We've seen chapter over chapter over chapter of Jacob lying and conniving and stealing to get his way. God is pursuing a sinner. He's revealing himself to this broken man and he's showing him and inviting him into a world that is bigger and greater than he can possibly imagine. And he's doing it by grace, just because he wants to. And Jacob wakes up from this dream and is in awe of this reality that God is here. And I think that's a really important thing that we forget sometimes. We get so busy with the things that we are doing that we forget that, that God is here. We are part of this epic adventure that God is leading us through. And, and, and whether you're a fan of like Narnia or Harry Potter or Tolkien's books or whatever, like life is so much bigger than we think it is. There's all of these little, these fictional stories about uh, secret passages to another world or magic or um, these great adventures, like they, they stir something in us. And maybe even if you're not a fan of, of fantasy and, and science fiction, like there's something in 
humanity that compels us to make these stories because we sense that the real world is something like this. There is something deeper and grander and greater going on than just like, man, I got to go to the bank today, right? Like, or the, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? Should I get a four-wheel drive or a two-wheel drive? Or should I get a, should I get a Tesla? Yeah, I should get Tesla, probably. And we, we, we spend so much of our time and our energy thinking about these things. And I don't want to say those are bad. We need to, we need to get groceries and we need to, you know, take care of our lives. But, but to sit back and recognize that you and I are a part of something that is so much greater than that is something that I don't think we do often enough. And, and that's one of, the, one of the things that we kind of key into, right, when we gather in a, in a place like this, when we sing, we're meant to be thinking about these greater realities. Jacob thinks that he's running from his angry brother and he's going to seek a wife to make his mom happy. But Yahweh is inviting him into this mysterious heavenly reality that is beyond his comprehension. God pulls back the curtain and he shows him where heaven and earth overlap. And Jacob says, God is in this place. And this is, this is a connection to what our problem is as people from the very beginning, right? Adam and Eve in the garden had connection to God, right? They were in his presence, experiencing him continually. And because of sin, they lost that. The sons of God in Genesis 6, they rebel and try to reconnect heaven and earth together. And it results in the flood. The, the, the people in Babylon in Genesis 11 rebel and they try to create a tower to heaven to reconnect heaven and earth. And they're punished for that. But this is the ultimate longing of the human heart that we, that we don't always even realize that we have, that we would be reconnected with God that we would be able to be filled with God's presence. Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes says, what does the worker gain from his struggles? I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts, but no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. I love this. He, he, just, he points out, like, you, there's a lot of stuff that God has given us to do. To build houses and to cook food and to, you know, keep the yard. And, and all these things are fine and good and beautiful in their own way. But he's also put something in us that we, there's an itch that we just can't scratch. There's just something deep inside of us that none of the things in our world satisfy. No matter how financially fruitful you are or how invested you are in your hobbies or how much you love your family, there's a part of you that you're just like not satisfied with. And Solomon says it's because God has put this thing in you that longs for eternity. And everything that we do is ultimately striving for that. 
safety and rest and satisfaction in the presence of God. And Jacob is awed by this experience. He's blown over by God's presence in this moment. He has this this transformational moment and shift in perspective. He sees things from a completely different lens. But then the next thing is, how does he respond to this? Verse 18, early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. And Jacob made a vow, if God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give to you a tenth of all that you give me. Jacob wakes up, and he marks the place with a stone, and he consecrates it with some oil. This is a religious ceremony. He's, he's worshiping Yahweh in this moment. But there's something that's just a little bit off about his vow, isn't there? Yahweh comes to Jacob and says, this is what I'm going to do for you. These are all the things that I am promising you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your descendants. All of these things are going to happen, Jacob, because I've chosen you. But Jacob doesn't really believe him yet, does he? If Yahweh will be with me, if he provides, if I return, then Yahweh will be my God. Then I will return and give a tenth to you. After all of that, after the dream, after the promises, Jacob is still Jacob. He's still a schemer. We'll see if I can trust you, God. He's willing to try, but he's not so sure about it. I do, many of you know this, I, I do video work and um, I, I make scope of work agreements for clients and, and, and they usually say like, this is what we're going to do and I'm going to take 50% up front and then I'm going to do the thing and then when you're happy with the thing, then you're going to pay me the rest of it. And it's very official, you know, and there's signatures and dates and paperwork and stuff and, and, and this, is, this is what Jacob is doing, right? Yahweh is becoming Jacob's business partner. Like, I'm going this way. And you said you're going to do this, and if you come through with me, then I will respond in kind. Jacob doesn't trust God. He experiences this sign and has a shift in his perspective and sees God as bigger and greater than he ever has before, but it's still not quite enough. And I think this is really important for us because I bet some of us a few minutes ago were thinking, man, I wish God would show up in my dreams. I wish I would have experiences with God like that. God never speaks to me like that. I wish he would make promises to me and give me direction. I wish I had that kind of relationship with God. But the reality is this dream fills Jacob with awe, but it doesn't do anything for his heart. It doesn't change him. It opens his eyes to this larger world, but he's still unwilling to let God lead. Signs and wonders and prophecies and miracles, they can be valuable, but they won't change your heart if you're unwilling to trust God. In John chapter 2, Jesus is um, doing many signs and wonders. And it says, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. 
Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them because he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus is doing these miracles and a bunch of people are really excited about it. But he's like, yeah, we'll see. Because these miraculous things, these, these visions and dreams and, and healings and exorcisms, they, they're exciting, but they don't necessarily create faith. So Jacob has this amazing dream, and it's the beginning of his personal relationship with God. Up until this point, Yahweh has been his father's God, but now he is Jacob's God. But he's not really going to be Jacob's God for another 20 years. We get forward, fast forward all the way to chapter 35, 20 years later, God said to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Make good on your promise, Jacob. So Jacob said to his family and all who are with him, get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. We must get up and go to Bethel. I will build an altar there to the God who answered me in the day of my distress. He has been with me everywhere I have gone. See, we don't, what we see 20 years later when Jacob has gone into this foreign land and um, gotten married and had children and come back and been blessed financially, he's put up with his family worshiping foreign gods for 20 years. And he finally says, yeah, I need to make good on that promise that I made to God back then. We need to stop doing that. And this is the outcome of Jacob's bargain. It takes him 20 years to trust. And the thing is, those whole 20 years, God is faithful to him. God never wavers in his faithfulness. But it takes Jacob that long for his faith to mature. And I think, I think this is really helpful, especially maybe if, if you're not a Christian this morning and, and you've, you've got this idea that like, like church people or Christians are like good people. Um, Christians don't start out as good people. Christians are actually some of the worst people. And that's the point, right? Like, the goodness and kindness and grace of God for people that don't deserve it is the centerpiece of what we believe about the world. And we see it in Jacob's life that Jacob doesn't deserve God's love, but God pursues him anyway. C.S. Lewis says, the Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. And so God, throughout the next 20 years, is always going to be faithful to his promises to Jacob, even when Jacob isn't. Jacob is going to get a wife, and then he's going to get three more wives, which is not a good idea, and he's going to struggle in his home life in his work life, with his in-laws. He's never really going to shake that confusion and that anxiety and that fear until he finally sets it all down and decides to trust God. And it's going to be a lesson that's going to take him 20 years to learn. But this moment in Bethel is, is the starting point. Like, and, and it's easy to be critical of it because it, there, there's things to be critical of, but but faith has to start somewhere, right? And so, so maybe, maybe you've walked with Jesus for a long time. Maybe you haven't. But whatever, wherever you're at, like today, 
is a day to begin to trust God with whatever is coming. This story comes up later on in the scriptures. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we read, The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Nathaniel in this story is amazed because Jesus seems to be able to see in his mind's eye over great distances and knew that Nathaniel at some point earlier that we're not told about was sitting under a fig tree. And Nathaniel's mind is blown by this. And he believes. He just he has faith. But Jesus says, no, there's actually something bigger going on here. It's not just that I have this like um, magic trick that I can do. He says, you're going to see me, the Son of Man, a title that he takes from the book of Daniel, and you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on me. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying that I am that stairway to heaven. I am the access to the presence of God. That, that time way back then when Jacob thought that he had found the place that heaven and earth meet, the reality is I'm the place that heaven and earth meet. G.K. Bill says, Jesus is the new Bethel, the place where God is revealed, where heaven and earth, God and humanity meet. And so this idea of, of awe and beauty and satisfaction, all these things that we are longing for as our deepest needs, the eternity placed in our heart, like Solomon says, all of these things they're found in Jesus. So if we are people who would say like, yeah, I, I recognize where Jacob's at. I feel lonely. I'm confused. I'm depressed, anxious, afraid, uncomfortable. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus. Listen to the promise of Jesus and, and, and believe it. Trust him in it. Live your life oriented toward it. See, most of us, Jesus doesn't appear like the stairway to heaven. Most of us aren't given supernatural experiences. Some of us have. Some of us have seen Jesus. Some of us have experienced uh, what we would consider abnormal things. And that's amazing and good. But for most of us, all of the time and all of us, most of the time, Jesus is just kind of a normal feature in the landscape of our lives. Whether you're Christian or not this morning, to trust in Jesus seems like a pretty kind of meh 
thing to say. I mean, you did come to church, right? That's kind of what we do here. But what if, what if Jesus, as this true stairway to heaven, this true reality where heaven and earth meet, what if that's like the sign that the kids in Narnia missed? See, something that seems so normal, so, un, uh, so ordinary, so unhelpful in the moment, but that's just because their perspective was wrong. Or, or maybe what's worse, what if we find ourselves responding to Jesus the same way Jacob did, thrilled to hear that God wants to bless us, and then putting like a Jesus is my co-pilot sticker on our cars, and just continuing to fight our way through our life on our own terms, deciding that we will trust him someday after he proves himself to us. And my hope for us is that we would be people that are being shaped into something different than that. We have the opportunity today, just like every day, to turn ourselves toward God and say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we prayed this morning. To say, you have given me precious promises, and we talk about them all the time, and I trust you with them, and I'm going to allow you to work for my good. And so that's the, that's the call for all of us today as we, as we think about Jacob and his, his experience. He's been given this great gift of being chosen by God for a purpose, just like all of us. And God will come through on that promise. And on the other side of 20 years, uh, Jacob will bear the scars of not trusting him in those moments. Um, some of us, probably all of us, who have been walking with Jesus for a while, bear some of those star scars of not trusting in Jesus in some of those moments. But today, we have the opportunity once again to say, I trust you. And I hope that we would be people that take that seriously. Let's do some questions. Could it be that Jacob isn't scheming, but rather showing that he's starting to believe God? God gave him a promise, and if that promise is true, he can trust. It's definitely possible to read the story that way, and you're going to find that most of the interpreters are split on this. Um, I, I read it the way I do primarily because of the text in Genesis 35 where he doesn't actually give up his false gods and his family until he gets back to Bethel and kind of makes good on the promise. Um, I, I see more of his scheming in him in this chapter than otherwise. But you, yeah, you could see it that way. It's interesting. Um, the tendency for um, much, much older interpretation. So thinking about um, the third, fourth, fifth century, uh, many of those um, church leaders didn't have a lens for seeing the patriarchs uh, in a negative light. And uh, I think that's a very interesting perspective. They, they looked at their stories and saw, because they were ultimately chosen by God to see stories of great faith. And so they would say, they, they would say all kinds of things about these stories that would paint them in a way that um, 
showed off the virtue in these men and women um, in, in some, some really, I would say, ludicrous ways. Um, but I tend to think that what we're seeing in the Old Testament stories is more um, stories of broken people, people just like us that are doing um, pretty broken things and highlighting the faithfulness of God in spite of that. Um, rather than the faithfulness of the people that God is choosing. But there's definitely a range of opinions there. When does polygamy become unacceptable in Jewish tradition? Does God ever speak out against polygamy? Yeah, I think... um, I would say that God is speaking out against polygamy from the very beginning when he sets up the institution of marriage... He puts parameters around marriage that are um, monogamous. And so the idea that polygamy is um, ever really um, supported by God, I, I don't think we really find that in Scripture. God allows for it. We see all through this section of Genesis and on into the law, there, there are obviously people that God is using that are polygamists. And I think what is helpful to understand, especially in, in the accounts of the patriarchs, is it's always a bad idea. Like, there's, there's never a polygamous marriage where, like, everything's great. Uh, there's always problems. And so I think pointing back to the ideal marriage in Genesis and saying, this is the way that God has designed marriage to work, and deviations from it cause problems, um, that can be borne out in the Scriptures. And then when we get to the law, we see that God puts guardrails on polygamy, not because he's approving of it, just like he's not approving of a lot of things in the Old Testament, but because this is the culture that he's speaking to and he's setting up um, situations where abuse and, um, um, yeah, primarily where abuse of women, vulnerable women, will not take place. Um, As far as when polygamy becomes unacceptable in Jewish tradition, by the time of Jesus... Uh, it, it has been completely phased out. Um, there, the Jewish tradition is in the second temple period is pretty anti-polygamy, and I'm not exactly sure when that takes place. I'd have to look into that a little bit more. Uh, but I know the re- one of the reasons why polygamy is kind of done away with is because of the testimony of the Old Testament that it's just never, never works out very well. Good questions. We're going to take communion. Um, the communion meal that we eat every week, it's, it just doesn't, doesn't look like much. It's, it's simple. It's hard to make much of. Some, some pieces of cracker and some little thimbles full of juice or wine. Some Christian traditions deliberately don't partake of the communion meal very often because they don't want to prevent it. They, want, they don't want to make it routine. Um, depending on, on your, your church background, maybe you took communion monthly or even like once a year. And I think that's a mistake. I think it's something really wonderful and it's powerful and it's deeply meaningful and I think we should uh, do it every week like we do. But it doesn't seem very exciting. And I, I think just as we can have a really powerful supernatural experience because we can um, maybe be like Jacob and have this enlightening dream, we can still walk in doubt. 
can still not truly trust. We can also misunderstand something that seems simple on the surface because we don't see it with spiritual eyes. And that, that stairway, that chasm between heaven and earth that that stairway fills is closed at the cross, right? Jesus' death opens up the gates of heaven to those who would trust in him. And, and this is the thing that we're called to remember every week, that we, we reenact this rededication to our allegiance to Christ because he is the way to the presence of God. We put our trust in him. We give our faith to him. And we remember his broken body and his shed blood for our sins um, on the cross. And so as we, as we sing, as we worship together, uh, I'm just invite you to come up and take the communion elements back to your seat and ask the Holy Spirit to show you if there's a place in your life that you're not trusting him to take care of you, a place in your life that you're, you're, uh, you've, you've got like a, um, a scope of work contract with God. Like, if you do this, if you take care of that, then I'll promise I'll do this thing. But until you fulfill your part of the bargain, I'm not going to move here. Uh, if that exists in your heart, I just pray that you would uh, be open to being, that being pointed out and to give it up. Ask God where it is and to give it back to him and, and to begin to trust him to fulfill the promises that he's made to you. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.